Colossians chapter 4 tonight, and uh, we're going to begin reading at verse 2. We are in Colossians chapter 4, beginning at verse 2. You can stand with me for the reading of God's word. While you stand, I'll sit. No, I won't do that. I thought about trying something new, but we'll stick to the old way about it there. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, our initial reading will be down to verse 6. By the time we're done, we'll finish this chapter out, and uh, the book of Colossians actually as well. Uh, So let's begin reading verse 2, chapter 4. This is what it says. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving, with all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds, that I, might, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time, and let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man." I've just titled the message simply, Final Instructions for Christian Living. And so, you may be seated. Now, this is really wrapping up, the portion that we just read here is wrapping up the instructions that he's giving to the Colossian believers. Remember, he had the doctrinal portion, and then we moved into the practical application. And so the verses that we just read are really where this epistle is going to end as far as the instruction, and then there'll be a few more things that he'll mention towards the end, Uh, but still some things together from that as well. Uh, You know, as we've been going through this book of Colossians, it has been an incredible letter. Uh, I've learned so much as we looked at this, as we studied it together. You know, Jesus has just gotten bigger and bigger every week, hasn't he? As we see this, this book has the way of doing that. It it just makes Jesus look bigger and bigger and bigger. And we've seen that happening week by week. It's shown us with clarity the person of Jesus Christ. Remember at the very start of that, uh, we talked about how it would be lenses for us to look through that we might see Jesus clearly. And I believe at this point that perhaps you've got a clear vision of Jesus. Yes. And, uh, And so we see the person of Christ. We've also seen the deity of Christ. People can deny that, but this book makes it perfectly clear that Jesus is God in the flesh. We've seen the supremacy of Christ. We've seen the power of Christ and the glory of Christ. We've seen the work of Christ for us and in us. We've seen that he is working for us and in us. It's amazing when we think about the fact that he made peace for us by his blood and he redeemed us and he reconciled us by the death of his cross and how he secured for us eternal life in Christ. Isn't that amazing? And we've learned all of these things. We've seen all of these things in Colossians. He's shown us what it means to be identified with Christ, how it, what it means to be joined to him, how it talked about that we are complete in him, how he is in us and we are in him. There is that that union and how that Christ is sufficient. That union is 
sufficient for us so that we can live in peace and freedom, that we don't have to make things complicated. Remember, we talked about that, how we can just enjoy walking with our Savior. What freedom he gives. Who the Son sets free is free indeed, the Bible says. It's shown us the power that he has to live in us and through us. It has shown us how the new life affects those around us as well, how we should interact with the people around us. Really, it's been a roadmap to show us how that we might be strengthened in our relationship to God and also showed us how we can be strengthened in our relationship to our brothers and sisters as well. Uh, We've seen that it it has affected uh, every area of our life, really, is what we've been looking at. If we allow Christ to do it and to be the center of our life, we'll see that he will begin to affect every area in us and those around us if we'll allow him to move in that way. And so we've seen in this, in this uh, epistle how Christ is and should be the center of everything in our life. That's what this book has been all about. And so now he's going to give us a few more instructions, a few final instructions for Christian living. Something else I really enjoy about this book, Colossians, remember that this was a book that was written to a church that Paul had never been to. They got a letter from Paul and they read uh, the letter that Paul, the letter, the letter that we're reading tonight, that we've been studying. And how much can we identify with this church from, that we're, we're separated by 2,000 years, but we've gathered around the same letter and we've drawn from it in the same way. We've never met Paul. He's never been here to this church, but we have his letter. And in the same way that they learned, having never met him, here we are are brothers and sisters separated by thousands of years and yet in the same way we have that common thread which is the word of God that's why I love this book of Colossians because it speaks to them but it speaks directly to us Throughout this series, I've, I've, I've talked in a way that was addressing us directly. And the reason is because this also addresses us directly. And so we continue in that. Not only is he talking to the Colossians, but also to us. And of course, the divine author is the Holy Spirit of God speaking through the Apostle Paul. And so that's the authority by which Scripture speaks to us. Now look at verse Two again. And the first instruction that he's going to give us is to continue in prayer. There are three main uh, things that he's going to instruct us in tonight. I'll give them to you ahead of time and then we'll come back through them. He wants us to continue in prayer, to walk in wisdom, and to speak wisely. Those are the three main points and then we'll discuss those from here. So look at verse two. Continue in prayer. Verse two says that very sentence. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Thomas Watts, several years ago, wrote this. Prayer delights God's ear. It melts his heart. It opens his hand. God cannot deny a praying soul. Isn't that wonderful? Prayer uh, delights God's ear. It melts his heart. It opens his hand. And when we come to God in prayer, 
He loves it when we come to him in prayer. And Paul says, uh, continue in prayer. Now let me say this, prayer is essential in the Christian life. Do you know that tonight? Many of you walking with the Lord for many years, you know this, is prayer is essential in the Christian life. It's essential to fellowship with God. That is our line of communication. That is our dialogue with God. It is one of our greatest joys, but it's also one of the hardest things to do, isn't it? Prayer can be just, you can be, uh, you can feel like you're in heaven in the moment as you're praying, but it can be very hard to continue in prayer. And Paul says, look, if you're going to live the Christian life, you need to continue in prayer because it's important. You know, Gene Huff, my good friend, went to be with the Lord. We all love Gene, and we would often talk before services, and, and he had a saying. I'm not sure where he got it from, but he, and I can see him in my mind saying it right now. Prayer is the key, but faith unlocks the door. Remember that? You probably heard that a thousand times. Prayer is the key, but faith unlocks the door. And he used to say that, uh, and, and the reason is, is because it's true. When we pray in faith to the living God, did you know that prayer can change things? That prayer uh, can change hearts? That prayer can change minds? Did you know that prayer can transform circumstances? Things that look like they're too big can suddenly uh, be taken care captive and God can bring deliverance in a situation that looks uh, impossible. Prayer can break bondages. Prayer can bring healing. It can avert catastrophes uh, in your life and in the lives of others. Did you know that prayer is so powerful, but we don't use it as much as we should, do we? We don't pray nearly as much as we should, but Paul says you need to continue in prayer. Now, let me say this. It's not the mere act of prayer there are people all over the world that pray to some God somewhere, to something, to some stump, to some idea, but it's prayer in faith to the living God who is seated at his throne in heaven. We pray in faith to the God who is alive and well tonight, who is in this room, who is able to do anything. It's not just the exercise of prayer, but it's the fact that we pray to the God who is alive, who is able to do the, anything that's needed to be done. Now, we can't talk about this without going to Matthew chapter 6. There's one verse here that I want to bring up. You know it. Many of you know the verse I'm talking about. Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. And this follows right along the same vein. Don't worry, we're not going to launch off into outer space. We will come back, so you can keep Colossians open. Uh, but it says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father, which is in secret. And thy Father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly." Now, every Christian needs a prayer life. That's what we're talking about, right? And not only that, but Jesus expected us to pray. Did you catch the phrase that he said? Put that back up here if you would. He says right there in verse 6, when thou prayest, when you pray. He's saying, so I'm expecting that you're going to do this when you pray. Now, it may come by adversity and trial and struggles and difficulties, but you're going to pray. If you're a believer, you're going to pray, but it should be more than that. We shouldn't just run to prayer when we need something. It is a line of communication. It is fellowship. It is that enjoyment to be in the presence of God. 
Now, let me tell you this. The reason that I want to bring this verse up is because this is a life-transforming verse, if you'll allow it to be. If you take the word of God for what it says and actually apply it and do what it says, you might be amazed what God will do in your life. It was several years ago that I took this very verse and Jesus said uh, what he just said. We just read it. And I said, well, you know what? If Jesus said to go into a place and to pray and shut the door and pray and believe God, uh, I said, you know what? I'm going to do that. I'm going to have a prayer life. Jesus said to do it, and so I said, you know what, I'm going to do it. So what I did is I, I had a room, a spare room, and I said, well, that's, this is going to be my place. This is going to be my prayer closet. And I would go in there, and uh, I would say, well, he said, go in and shut the door, and you go in and you pray. I mean, that's basically what he's saying. You go in to your place of prayer, you close the door, and you pray. And so that's what I did. I said, okay, that's what Jesus said. That's what I'm going to do. I go in there, and it, uh, when I first started, it was just, you know, it, like 20 seconds. I'd been play I felt like I'd been praying for days, you know. What else is there to pray about? I've been here forever. What? It's not even a minute yet? Come on. But then seconds turn to minutes. As you continue in this, in your prayer life, continue Minutes turn to hours. And then over the course of your life, you know those hours turn to days and weeks and months and years in prayer. You know what that is? That's time in fellowship with God. And I can tell you that every major thing that has ever happened in my life in the progression since I've really truly given my life to the Lord has happened from that moment where I took Jesus at his word when he said, go into your place of prayer, go into your closet and shut the door. And when you do pray and the father that sees you in secret will reward you openly. And the, everything that I've ever known, every song that I've written, every sermon that I've ever preached has come from that place of being in fellowship and union with God and it means more than anything to me that's the place where God can move and if you'll take Jesus at his word for what he said and do what he says this can be a life transforming verse in your life you can find out what it means to pray you can find out what it means to touch base with the living God who is in heaven who will meet you in that place of prayer you can find out what it means when the power of God and the presence of God comes so strongly on you where you feel like you're there you feel like you're in heaven with him right if you open your eyes you can see him standing there that's what private prayer can do in your life it's union it's fellowship and that's the place where all the blessings and all all the joys and all the everything uh, that you need as you live your life that is a source of strength for the believer don't neglect it don't neglect it. If you don't have a prayer life, do what I did. Take this verse and begin to let that minister to your heart and take Jesus for what he said. Don't give up on it. Keep going. Keep pushing in and you'll find out that those seconds turn to minutes. Those minutes turn to hours and those hours turn to days and those days turn to months and those months turn to years and one day you're going to get to heaven and it's going to be like there's your friend you've been talking to all these years. <laughs> And now you can see him. Don't wait till you get to heaven to get to know Jesus. 
I mean, that seems like an odd statement, right? But don't be alienated from your Savior in heaven that wants to spend time with you. So let's take a, let, let's break this down just a little bit more and then we'll get back into Colossians. But remember, Paul is saying, continue in prayer. So I think it's necessary that we take this detour to talk about prayer, to talk about this joy that we have. So number one, have a place of prayer. Have a place of prayer. Look at that verse again. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. What he's saying is have a meeting place with God. It doesn't mean you have to get into your little closet and close the door. If that's all you got, go for it. But that's not, he's saying have a place of prayer. Have a place that you can go and meet God. Have a place. Here's what, here's what, I, what I used to say when I first started. I said, uh, God, uh, this is the place that I've decided is the place for prayer. And when I'm here, I want you and me both to know why I'm here. Amen. Have a place of prayer. When you go there, God, you and me both know why I'm here. It's to pray. So have a place. It's not about making something of the place. You don't want to idolize the place. You can, you can pray any place, anytime, anywhere, and you should. But there's something special about having a meeting place with God. Why do we have altars in the church? It's a meeting place with God. The power's not in the altar, but you come to the altar and you pray because you know God's going to meet you there. Why? Because God knows why you are there and he knows why uh, you've come to the altar. So you and God both know why you're there. That's what we're talking about, a meeting place. Andrew Murray said this about it. He said, oh, let the place of secret prayer become to me the most beloved spot on earth. And I tell you, when you begin to pray, that meeting place will become to you the most precious place on earth because your Savior will meet you there. Not only that, be focused. Shut the world out and pray. Look again at that verse. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, your meeting place, and when you have, shut your door and what? pray. Why am I here? To pray. That's what he's saying. When you go in there, go in there to pray. Charles Finney said, prayer bathes the soul in an atmosphere of the divine presence. Isn't that what we've been talking about? When we go into that room, the Spirit of God can begin to move. You're open to Him. The lines of communication are open. You can sit quietly before the presence of God and pour out your heart. He's not afraid to hear what you have to say. He's not afraid of what you might say. He already knows it before you begin to speak. He's just wanting you to come into fellowship with Him. So what I'm saying is devote time to prayer and fellowship with God. It's necessary. Paul was saying, continue in prayer. You need to shut the door on distractions. Don't allow, allow things from the outside to come in and, and disrupt your time of fellowship. Your prayer closet is where you're going to get the fresh life, the fresh anointing, the fresh blessings from God. Take the time to enter in and let the presence of God refresh your soul. The wells of water that you dig in your prayer closet are the wells from which you can offer others a drink. It is the living water from the presence of God. You want to be able to minister to somebody? 
Go in and dig some wells in that prayer closet. Let God water your soul. And then from that blessing that you have received in private prayer with God, take that out to somebody and water some thirsty soul that needs a touch from God. That's what we're talking about. Not only that, but pray in faith to the God who answers prayer. Look again at our verse, Matthew 6, verse 6. When you pray, enter into your closet, your meeting place. When you have shut the door from distractions from the world, leave your phone outside. It'll be the first thing to go off when you go in your prayer closet. And pray, that's why you're there, to the Father which is in secret. And thy Father which sees in secret shall reward thee openly. It's not just about the prayer. It's about the God that you're praying to. He is a living God, and he will meet you there in that place. It's about the Lord of glory who is able to answer in power. It's about the one that can do anything. It's about the one who can heal your diseases. It's about the one who can bind up your wounds. It's about the one who can deliver the oppressed and the broken and the bound. Tear down the enemy's strongholds that are in your life. It's the one that can set the captives free. It's the one that can come and move in your life. Pray to your heavenly Father who hears you in secret and watch him work miraculously in your life openly. Hallelujah. Our prayers, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as you pray more and more, you'll find more and more you're in tune with what that will of God is. Your desires will begin to be conformed to his will, and you'll be able to pray along with him in accordance with his will. My prayer is often, Lord, let the reward that I'm seeking before you be that you be glorified in me. He talks about that you be rewarded openly. Oh God, let the reward that, I, that, that you're talking about, let it be that you be glorified in me. That as I'm here calling on your name, that in my life, that that reward, that open reward would be that Christ be glorified in my life. That's what I'm talking about. Have a prayer life with God. Not only that, but be watchful in prayer. And be alert and be on guard. Go back to Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. He said, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Now, this literally means to stay awake. We've been there. I don't know if I need to say anything else there or not. We've been there, let me tell you. Consider the disciples in the garden when Jesus when he was going to be betrayed. And he said, come along and pray with me. And comes back and he finds him sleeping. He said, could you not watch with me? Could you not stay awake with me one hour? Many prayer meetings have turned into quite refreshing naps, but not much of a spiritual exercise. Uh, I heard one preacher say, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is to take a nap, but that's a different message and another topic. We're talking about staying awake in prayer, being alert in prayer, being on guard. It also talks about spiritual alertness, not just physically staying awake and praying and, and, 
and praying to God, but also a spiritual alertness, uh, a spiritual uh, awakeness. We should literally and spiritually pray with alertness. And not only that, but we need to be on guard. See, the devil doesn't want you to pray. The devil doesn't want you to enter into the place where you're talking with the living God who has all power to do anything, who can, who can affect any life, anywhere, who can touch any person around the world right from that prayer closet. The devil doesn't want you in there communing with God and interceding for somebody. So what the devil oftentimes will do is he's going to attack you right in your place of fellowship. He's going to attack you right in that place of union and communion with God. Think about Judas came and betrayed Jesus in the garden, that place that he would uh, love to resort. And you think about another one, uh, Daniel, where they said, Daniel, you can't pray anymore. It's against the law. Daniel prayed three times a day. And he said, so what? Came time to pray. And what did he do? He prayed. Why? Because he knew the God that he was praying to. But what did the enemy do? Came right to his place of fellowship, came right to that place that he resorted to three times a day to commune with his God that he loved, that he knew, and so the enemy attacked him right there in that place. Said, ah, I don't want him there. I gotta do anything I can to get him out of there. Right in the place of fellowship. One person said, Daniel would rather spend a night with the lions than miss a day in prayer. Wow. So he was willing, because that was the alternative. Daniel, if you pray, you're getting thrown into the lion's den. But Daniel knew the God that he served. And the God that he served was able to shut the lion's mouth and deliver him. And Daniel's prayer life just continued right on. His God was able to deliver him. Not only that, but remember to give thanks. Look again at verse 2. Continue in prayer. Watch in the same with thanksgiving. Every prayer should be filled with thanksgiving, thankfulness for the cross, thankfulness for salvation, thankfulness to the God that gives you breath, thankfulness to the God who has given you life, thankfulness to the God that day by day sustains you. Every prayer should be full of thanksgiving for the privilege of prayer and for the answer to prayers. When you're praying, thank God. When he answers your prayers, thank God. In all things, thank God. Basically, that's it. Remember to give thanks. Now, listen. Not only that, but we're to intercede in prayer. Intercede in prayer. Paul said continue in prayer. And we're to intercede in prayer. This brought up another, another memory. And I know I talked about Gene earlier. But this one floored me. And I will never forget this. Sometimes a little prayer that you don't think much of might do a whole lot. Sometimes you may not think, you may think that your prayer came out, rolled off your bottom lip, hit the floor and then rolled around and a mouse came in and grabbed hold of it and ran off with it somewhere. I don't know. I've had prayers like that. Hey, bring that back here. I wasn't done with it. <laughs> Sometimes your prayer, you think, well, it didn't make much difference. Um, but I prayed, and I don't say this for you to think any, but anything of me in, in terms of this, but I prayed for Gene every day. Uh, uh, every single day I prayed for Gene. And one night, a Thursday night, at about 10.30, I got in bed, and I said, oh, I hadn't prayed for Gene yet. 
I got out of bed, got on my knees, said a prayer for Jean. It wasn't anything fantastic. Just praying for the Lord's blessing and, and so on and so forth. And I come to church Sunday, and he's sitting back there on the chair, and, and uh, I said, Gene, I've been praying for you. He goes, oh, I know it. And uh, he said, in fact, Thursday night at about 1030, you got down on your knees and you prayed for me, and I knew it. What? <laughs> what? He told me the day, the time, and exactly the position that I was in. And I didn't think anything of that prayer, but God honored it. And God answered that prayer, and I am still blown away to this day. He knew nothing of it, nothing about it, but he told me, Thursday, 1030, you got on your knees, you prayed for me, and I knew it. Don't underestimate what your little prayers might do. Because God can do anything. I, I'm still blown away by that. Amazing what God can do. So intercede in prayer. Look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 4 of Colossians. With all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds. I'm in prison. That I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Paul was saying, while you're praying, and I am urging you to be praying, while you're praying, pray for me. Pray for us. He was saying, we need your prayers over here. He was not asking for prayer for his physical ailments or whatever. He said, I want prayer for doors to be opened to preach the gospel. Paul in prison was not saying, oh, pray that one of the jailers will leave a key under a rock and I'll know where it's at and I can open the door. That's not what he was asking for. He was saying, I want opportunities to preach the gospel. He said, while you're praying, pray for us that are in prison. I want to be able to do more of what got me in jail in the first place. What a, what a prayer request. Why? Because Paul had a heart more for others than he had a heart for himself. He cared more about everybody else than he did for his own self. He wanted prayer for those that were laboring in the gospel. He wanted prayer uh, for doors to be opened. He wanted opportunities to preach more about the gospel, to tell people about the, the fact that Christ would come and live in you, the hope of glory, and that it didn't matter if you were Jew or Gentile or Greek or whatever. It didn't matter. He just wanted to be able to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to you and say, here it is. Receive it. It's wonderful wonderful. That's what he wanted. He wanted open doors to preach the gospel. That's Paul's prayer request. Look again at verse 4, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. So he wanted prayer to speak with anointing and clarity. He wanted to be able to speak it well. He wanted prayer to be able to speak with boldness, with passion, with power, with sincerity. He, he wanted to be able to present the gospel in a, in a convincing, clear, and powerful way like he had done in years past. You think about Paul at this point in his life, he's been beaten and battered an awful lot. He's really been through the mill at this point, and he's getting older. 
And he didn't want anything to prevent him from preaching the gospel. He said, I want doors to be opened. I want opportunities. And I don't want anything, any of my physical ailments or anything like that. He said, I just don't want anything to get in the way. So pray that I'll be able to speak powerfully and clearly and boldly to present the gospel, regardless of whether it gets me back in jail again. I just want to do more of what got me here in the first place because my God is good. My Savior is incredible. And you need to know him too. That's what his desire was. And so he was saying, he's saying, pray for me. Maybe his prayer was something like this. Lord, give me the grace to preach with the wisdom of my age and the stamina of my youth. Maybe that was a prayer that Paul would pray. Give me the ability to preach with the wisdom of my experience that I've gained through the years in service to you. But not only that, but to be able to apply that with the stamina that I had in my youth. Oh, God, grant me the ability to be able to clearly present the gospel. Let nothing hinder that. And not only is he asking them to intercede, but in the same way, we should be interceding for one another. If you're not sure what to pray about, pray for us. Pray for your pastor, our pastor. Pray for me. We pray for you. We pray for each other. Intercede for one another. Pray for us for open doors, for greater anointing, for more boldness, for clarity of message, for power, for strength. Pray for us to be able to communicate the gospel in greater ways in the days ahead in a world that rejects the message. Pray for us that we have greater sincerity and power and anointing in the preaching that we do that we may be able to reach others. Pray for us. We'll pray for you too. We pray for one another. We should intercede for one another. That's what Paul is saying. We're praying for you back here in this prison cell, Colossae. You guys pray for us too. We sure could use your prayer out here. That's what he's saying. We'll pray for one another. We'll pray for each other. See, we should be praying for our families. We should be praying for our friends, for our coworkers, for our bosses, for our neighbors, for our leaders. Pray for our nation. Pray that God would bring in another awakening one more time to sweep across this world that another harvest of souls would come one more time before he catches away. Pray that God would begin to move as he did in the past. He can do it again. Pray with all your might. Pray with passion. Pray with power. Get into your prayer closet. Say, oh God, oh God, do what only you can do. I can't move this nation, but your hand can move this nation. Lord God, speak blessing, speak power, speak righteousness. Lord God, pour out your Holy Spirit one more time. Start in me, start in my friends, start in my pastor, start in my church. Lord, wherever you got to start it, just start it. Begin to move again. Stir your heart. Pray again. Oh God, I know you can do it. Do it one more time. Intercede, stand in the gap, pray, pray with all your might. Continue in prayer, don't give up, pray in faith. We're most like Jesus when we're praying for others. Why Jesus ever lives to intercede for us. Tonight Jesus is interceding for us. We're most like Jesus when we're praying for others. So why did Paul say to pray? Because prayer changes things. Prayer changes things. Get back in your closet and pray. 
Get back in your meeting place with God and pray. Get back into uh, wherever that meeting place is. Go back to your backyard and pray. Go back to your field and pray. Go back to your barn and pray. Wherever your meeting place is, if you've abandoned it, get back to your place of prayer. Dig those wells again. Let God stir your heart again. Get back and pray. Go back to the place. Cry out to God. Wrestle with, with all your might like Jacob did until a breakthrough comes. Pray until something changes. Pray until God moves. Why? Because the same God that answered prayers in the past answers prayers today. The same God that did miracles in the past can do miracles today. The same God that parted the Red Sea is still here today. He made the sun to stand still. He caused the walls of Jericho to fall down flat. He shut the lion's mouth. He caused the armies of aliens to flee from Gideon. He caused the people, that women that were barren in womb, he gave them children when they cried out to God. He has met, uh, met needs over and over again. Remember Hezekiah was on his deathbed and he cried out to God and the words come back and said, you will live and not die. He's still the God that can give life. He's still the God that can do miracles. He healed the sick. He cleansed the leper. He opened blinded eyes. He raised the dead. God is on his throne. God still moves. God is still the God of miracles. Pray to the God who is able unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. One of the worst things that we can do is think that we know what God can do because he's able to do more than that. More, the God that's able to do exceeding abundantly. Oh, hallelujah. I could stay there a lot longer, but I must be moving on. Verse five, instructions for Christian living, walk in wisdom. Walk in wisdom. First he said, continue in prayer. Now he says, walk in wisdom. Verse 5 says, walk in wisdom towards them that are without, redeeming the time. So Christians are representatives of Christ on earth. You know that. And we're always being observed by them that are without. That's what the verse says. That means unbelievers. That means the world. And so we have to walk or live in a way that is in accordance with the teachings of Christ, in accordance with what the Bible says. We're to walk in wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. So take the scripture and rightly apply it to your life. Walk in wisdom. We're to, we're to do that because we are a light in this world. We're not to shed negative light on the gospel or the cause of Christ. And if we're not walking in wisdom, we can quickly, quickly do that. Uh, your life will either validate you or it will invalidate you in the eyes of the world. Um, what people see in you as a believer will directly reflect on what they think about Jesus and the gospel. They don't care how much you know your Bible you can be real proud of that. They don't care. They don't care what your doctrine is. They're looking at you, Christian. 
How are you living, Christian? That's what they're, that's what they're doing. They're watching you. They're watching you. So, so Paul says, walk in wisdom towards them or that, that are without. Handle yourselves in a manner that is wise. Handle yourself in a manner that's consistent with the teachings of Christ. We're to avoid actual evil and the appearance of evil. It may not necessarily be wrong, but when the world sees it, they may say, whoa, I thought you was a Christian. Hmm, okay. You know, if we're going to be a witness for Christ, sometimes, and this is especially true, coworker situation, uh, a lot of times you have to earn their respect before you can speak into their life. You might, you might get opportunities to do things other, in other uh, capacity in, in evangelism and stuff, but, but when you're really one-on-one in your job or, or wherever you go and you're associated with, uh, uh, you've got to earn some respect before they're going to let you speak into their life and really say much to them at all. But I guarantee you they are watching to see if, if, if they ought to give you any respect or give you their ear. And so that's what he's talking about, walking in wisdom. And not only that, look at what the last thing, he, or the last part of verse 5. He says, redeeming the time. Paul is saying, don't miss an opportunity. Don't, don't miss an opportunity to talk about Christ, to share the gospel, to be a witness. Don't miss an opportunity to do that. Sadly, I know I have missed opportunities. And I ask the Lord to forgive me for those times. Sometimes I know right when the opportunity was that I missed and I had to go to my prayer closet and say, Lord, I'm sorry that I missed that opportunity. And a lot of times I'll ask that he'll send somebody in their path that will minister to them where I missed it. So I, at least I can help them in prayer since I blew it the first time. <laughs> but we're to redeem the time. When we get the opportunity to share the gospel, we're supposed to do it. When we can talk about the good things of God, we're supposed to do it. Basically, he's saying our time is limited. But not only that, think about the fact that the unbeliever, how much more limited their time is. We have the promise of everlasting life. The world does not. So though our time is limited, yes, physically speaking, how much more limited is their time? There's one breath between life and eternity. One second separates them from this world and the next eternal separation from God and the fires of hell. Think of how limited their time is. Ours is limited, but there's much more. One heartbeat, one second between them and eternity without God. Redeem the time is what he's saying. So in the spirit of wisdom, we have to we have, to have grace and talk about what Jesus has done in our life. Evangelism it can be really that simple. The opportunity presents itself. Simply say what good thing Christ has done in your life. You don't have to have some kind of formula some fancy way of doing it. Sometimes you just say, this is what Jesus has done for me. If they're open to hear it, don't miss an opportunity to say it. Which brings me to the next part. Speak wisely. Speak wisely. Verse 6, let your speech be always, always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Matthew Henry said it like this, let all discourse be discreet and seasonable, 
as becomes Christians, though it be not always of grace, it must always be with grace. Our conversation, our dealing with the world is not always going to be godly things or, you know, there'll be just day-to-day life. It may not always be of grace, but it should be with grace. We're to speak wisely. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 says this, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is what? Good. To the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Have you ever listened in on someone's conversation at a restaurant? So do they. (laughs) You may not realize that or thought of that. So, you dirty dogs listen to other people's conversations. Everybody is guilty of that. But they're listening to yours too. What are you talking about? When you go to lunch on Sunday morning, are you having somebody for lunch while you're eating your ham sandwich? Oh, man. Somebody's listening. I mean, God's listening, but somebody else is probably listening too. And so they're hearing your, they're hearing you talk about somebody. They're hearing you mouth on somebody. They're hearing your complaint about this or that and how bad this person is or that person. I can't believe they did that. And they're listening to these conversations. They're saying, oh, it's just getting juicier by the minute. Hmm. Woo. Before you know it, they're sitting at the table with you. Do I know you? Whatever you're talking about, keep going. I think I'm starting to get the cast. You, okay, this person and that person, okay. Paul says, with grace, watch. He's saying, watch your mouth. Watch your mouth. Nothing can do more damage quicker than your mouth. Can quickly, quickly make things spiral out of control. Your mouth can get you in trouble in just a few minutes of bad conversation in public or even amongst each other saying the wrong thing. Boy, it can tarnish your reputation in an instant. And all the time, you may have been working for years to have a good reputation, a good testimony among people, and you can, boy, you can kill it just like that. One dirty joke, one off-color comment, one, uh, one snide remark against somebody, and just like that, boy, you can really uh, do a lot of damage. That's why he says, don't let any corrupt communication come out of that thing right there. That <laughs> it will cause you lots of trouble. Don't let anything bad come out of there. Speak good things. Speak gracious things. Be merciful. Be kind. Be gentle with people. I'm not saying uh, that you should compromise on things, but you should be in encouraging. You should be someone that's a joy to be around. And if you have to correct somebody, make sure you do it tenderly with love, with a soft answer turns away wrath. We were talking about that this morning. A soft answer will turn away wrath. Now listen, this is awesome. Uh, Alexander McLaren, he was from years back, but he said something I want you to grab a hold of because it's going to make a difference. Men who feed their souls on great authors catch their style. So if we converse much with God, listening to his voice in our hearts, our speech will have in it a tone that will echo that deep music. Uh, 
Our accent will betray our country, then our speech will be with grace. What's he saying? He's saying that if you'll get in to that place of prayer in your prayer closet, and you begin to enter in, and you begin to commune with God, and the lines of dialogue are open, and you've got your Bible open, and you're learning what it says, and you're in prayer, and you're uh, immersing yourself in the presence of the Lord, what's going to happen is that's going to start rubbing off on you. As you read the writings of Jesus and how he talked, what's going to happen? You're going to start picking up things that he said. You're like when you hang out with friends, you start sounding like those friends. Sometimes they're good friends, sometimes they're bad friends. Well, he's saying get into the prayer closet with Christ and begin to commune with him and listen to the voice of God in your heart and the word of God. And as you do that, it's going to begin to rub off on you. And he says before before long, you're going to start having this accent that's from another country. The world's going to say, well, you, you have a a different kind of talk. It sounds different. And what's going to happen, they're going to begin hearing another voice when you speak. And the voice that they're going to be hearing is going to be the voice of God speaking through you to them. I prayed oftentimes before I come to preach, oh God, when I preach, let them hear another voice other than mine. Let them hear God's voice preaching through me. And when we get in that place of communion with God and we're beginning to feel the presence and get to know him more and more, it's going to begin to affect your speech. And then when you go out and talk, you're going to start sounding like Jesus. You're going to start talking like Jesus. And what's that mean? You're going to have grace in your speech. What's the Bible say about Jesus? Full of grace and truth. And that ought to be the speech of the believer having been in the presence of God and affected by that union with God. And now we begin to sound like a citizen of another country. God's country. That's what I'm talking about here. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Immerse yourself in the things of God because in our conversation, it should be full of grace and truth. And that should become apparent to those people. When you as a believer walk up into a conversation of unbelievers, if they know their conversation is going to change, it will. I seen it happen just the other day. I won't go into the details of it, but I walked up. Suddenly, the conversation shifted to church and questions about God and this and that, and they weren't talking about that before I got there. I know they weren't because I know. Just trust me on that one. When you walk up into a conversation, you're going to bring a restraining power with the Holy Spirit in you into that conversation. So our speech should be seasoned with salt. Look again at verse six. Let your speech be always with grace. Sound like Jesus. Be full of grace and truth. Seasoned with salt that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Salt does two things, serves two main purposes. It brings a change of flavor and it preserves. Okay? So we should bring, in the same respect, a change of flavor uh, salt brings life to food. I know that some of you, when you get ready to sit down at the table to eat, your first question is, where's the salt shaker? Question number two, what are we having? 
Some of you, question number three, where's the pepper at? I've seen it somewhere. It's got to be here somewhere. You can't ever find the pepper. So salt brings a change of flavors, doesn't it? The flavors come out. When the salt comes in, oh, that tastes good all of a sudden. You know, you got a, you got a plate full of greasy potato sticks. You're looking at them. But you put salt on them, babies, and you've got fries. Is that right, Ward? Big amen there. Salt brings a change of flavor. The, the stuff comes out then, right? Boy, you don't want them greasy potato sticks. Get that out of here. Give me some salt. I need some fries. And we should bring that same kind of life and vibrancy when we come in to a room and to a conversation of people. We should be full of life. You know, you listen to the world's conversation. It's complaining. It's this and that. And they're whining. There's foolish talk and there's, there's inappropriate jokes and all that. I mean, that's what they got. But the Christian has life. We come into the conversation and there's a restraining effect, but also now we've got life because we have, we have the giver of life living inside of us. So when we come into that place, we're to bring a change of flavor. We're not to just uh, go right in and go right along with him and sound and talk just like him. We're to bring a change of flavor. That's what he's saying. Your speech should be seasoned with salt. And listen to this. The right amount of salt or uh, graceful speech or uh, telling somebody when the opportunity is there, talking about what Christ has done for you, the right amount of that when you talk to an unbeliever is going to generate thirst in them. It's going to generate thirst. Why do you sound this way? Why are you saying these things? It's going to make them thirsty because your speech is salty and then they're going to need a drink. That means the door is going to open for you to say more. That's what it's talking about. So not only that, but we should be ready with answers. Ready with answers. Have answers preserved. Remember, remember I said salt preserves. Remember the last part of verse 6 says, season with salt that you may know how you ought to answer every man. So our speech basically saying we should have some answers preserved and ready to use when people get thirsty and it's time for the door to open and you get an opportunity to speak into their life, be ready to talk. Have an answer that you have preserved. When they ask you for the hope that lies in you, have an answer that's ready to give to them in that moment. I have been asked some really difficult questions in the past. And a really difficult question comes to me. They ask me an extremely difficult question. And I have an incredible, awesome answer. Man, spectacular, so good. Answer, two days later. <laughs> and the question doesn't matter anymore. That's why he says, be ready, have an answer preserved, ready to go in that. Don't ever get that question again without having an answer at that point. Work it out and be ready. Uh, I got to move along a little quicker here, but I want to read 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. He says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Saying basically the same thing. Be ready when they get thirsty and they are ready for you to talk to them and that salty talk generates some thirst. 
you be ready to lead them to the water of life where they can have that thirst quenched. All right, now it, that, that basically ends the, the instructional portion of this book of Colossians. Now, quickly, I'm going to go through uh, this next portion, and I've just titled it Paul's Friends and the Conclusion of the Letter. Real elaborate title there, I know, thanks. First of all, let me say this. Every leader in every church needs good people around them in order to make things happen. I am so thankful for our workers in this church, for our teachers in the back, for our people that do hospitality, that come in and help clean, our singers, musicians. From the front to the back, I'm not leaving anybody out in this. I'm saying I appreciate everybody that, that works in this church. You are our friends and fellow laborers in Christ. And you're gonna see Paul talking about his friends and laborers in Christ. There are 10 people mentioned in verses seven through 17. The first eight appear to be closest to him. The last two are greeted and given a couple instructions. Uh, I'm gonna tell you the names and then we're gonna go through them real quick. You have Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Marcus, which is John Mark, Jesus, which is not Jesus of Nazareth. He's also known as Justice. You have Epaphras, Luke, Demas, and then he greets Nymphus and Archippus. Look at verse seven, and, or seven through nine. All my states shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they shall make known unto you all things which are done here. He's saying, I'm sending Tychicus to you. He's headed your way. And Tychicus was a faithful friend of Paul, a faithful friend. We, we come across him first uh, over in Acts chapter 20. He is one of the Jews, that, or Gentile converts rather, that were accompanying Paul to Jerusalem at the time. He's also mentioned as being a fill-in replacement for Titus over in Titus chapter 3, verse 12, and also for Timothy over in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. So Paul trusted Tychicus with important tasks, and he had known him a while. He describes him as a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. Not only that, Tychicus was responsible for delivering the letter of the Ephesians, Colossians and Philemon, but Onesimus was with him, and I believe Onesimus hand-delivered that to his old master, Philemon, which is the next name that we come to, Onesimus, verse 9. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, meaning he's a Colossian, Onesimus is. They shall make known unto you all things which are done here. They were also going to fill them in on all the other details that Paul didn't tell them about their life there and what was going on, the basic day-to-day -day activities. They're going to give you from their mouth, from me, basically what's happening there. Onesimus was a runaway slave. He ran away from Philemon to Rome to hide, and God found him there, and Paul led him to the Lord. And so then... Paul writes a letter called Philemon to his master and sends it back by Onesimus and Tychicus, basically saying, 
he is a faithful and beloved brother. That's how Paul describes him. He doesn't say you're a runaway slave. He says a faithful, beloved brother is coming back to you. And Paul says, you know, if he's done anything wrong, lay it on my account, I'll take care of it. Isn't that amazing? That sounds like Jesus. Then we come to verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you. Aristarchus was another great friend and travel companion of Paul. He was described as my fellow prisoner. He's in jail with him. He was a Macedonian of Thessalonica and a convert from Judaism. We see him in Acts 19, verse 29. The great riot that erupted in Ephesus uh, when the silversmiths were worried about the temple Diana and losing money and all that, and they stirred up the townspeople and had this great big riot, Aristarchus was one of the people that they snatched up. He was in the middle of the riot over in Ephesus. He was one of the people with Paul at the time. Not only that, he was also with Tychicus, what I mentioned earlier when they went to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 20. He was also with Paul on the ship headed to Rome that crashed and broke apart and they floated in the ocean and ended up on Melita. So somebody was probably saying, Aristarchus, you have really got to consider your choice of friends, dude. <laughs> but he stuck in there with him. Then we come to Mark or Marcus, John Mark, at the second half of verse 10. Marcus, sister, son to Barnabas, touching whom you receive commandments. If he come unto you, receive him. This is John Mark. This is Barnabas' cousin. This is the writer of the gospel of Mark. Uh, according to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, he's a convert of Peter. He calls him Marcus, my son. And uh, Mark had washed out on Paul's first missionary journey. It, it was a big deal because whenever it come time for the second one, Barnabas wanted him to go with him. And Paul said, no way, Jose, no way, Barnabas. He's not coming. He washed out last time. He's not coming with us. It was such an issue that Barnabas and Paul split. And Paul went with Silas, Barnabas took John Mark. But now we have here, years later, Mark has recovered himself, and Paul has let that offense go, water under the bridge, it's gone, and he says, if he comes unto you, receive him. In Paul's last letter, he also says, take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. So Paul, in his later years, says, listen, don't make the same mistake I made if he comes you make sure you welcome him. And he wanted the Colossians to know that. In case Mark comes your way, you treat him good. He's a good, he's one of the good guys. Then we come to Jesus, which is called justice, verse 11. And Jesus, which is called justice, who are of the circumcision. These only are my fellow workers under the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort to me. He's saying he's of the Jews, of the circumcision. We don't know much about him other than he was a comfort to Paul. Then we come to Epaphras, verse 12 and 13. Epaphras, who is one of you, meaning he's a Colossian, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he has a great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea and them in Hierapolis. Uh, I'll just say this briefly. Epaphras, we've talked a lot about him, an incredible pastor, 
an incredible pastor to Colossae, Laodicea, Hierapolis, and minister to all those. And Paul says all the time he is fervently agonizing in prayer for you guys. Probably in the middle of the night, he probably heard Epaphras. Oh, God, bless the people in Colossae. And Paul was saying, okay, all right, I'll pray with you. I would say Paul was saying, let me get some sleep, but Paul wasn't that kind of guy. And so he traveled over 1,300 miles to help his congregation and in the process lost his freedom and ended up in prison, according to Philemon. So he wasn't able to go home, but he continued to pray. He wasn't bitter. He prayed for his congregation. He loved his congregation. Really, he gave himself for his congregation. He gave up his life in order to protect them from the false teachers. That was a shepherd that gave his life for his sheep, just like Jesus. Then we come to Luke, and we're going to wrap this up. Chris, go ahead and come up and get ready to bring a song. Luke, it says in verse 14, the beloved physician. This may be Paul's best friend. If I was to guess, I would say this may have been his best friend. He was a frequent traveling companion, a personal physician, and the writer of the Gospel of Luke, as well as Acts. And in Paul's last letter, he had a touching phrase that he said. He said in 2 Timothy 4.11, only Luke is with me. What a friend. Stuck with him all the way through to the end. In the same verse, we find someone who wasn't such a good friend. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Demas is mentioned in the Bible three times, and uh, you can let that tell you the story of his life. In Philemon, he is called a fellow laborer. In Colossians, he's just Demas. And in Paul's final letter, 2 Timothy, the sad story is told in 2 Timothy 4.10, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica. There was a slow drift there, and Demas departed from Paul. How many pastors have seen that sad story? Someone who was once a laborer for Christ, who slowly drifted away, and then ultimately went away into the night, never to return. Verse 15, salute the brethren which are at Laodicea and Nympus and the church which is in his house. The early church met in homes. Verse 16, when this epistle is read unto you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So the writings of Paul were circulated among the churches. And the different churches would read them, probably copied them down almost immediately. There will be some people that claim that Paul wrote a letter to Laodicea. Uh, the language here says, read the epistle from Laodicea. Most people, most scholars believe that that is actually the letter uh, Ephesians that was making its way to Colossae at that time. So in any event, Paul said, the letter that you have, make sure you read it when it gets to you. Verse 17, say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord that you fulfill it. It seems when we read that that perhaps Archippus was not maybe being faithful to the ministry. And Paul gave that commendation. Make sure the ministry God gave you that you fulfill it. That's words for each one of us. Suddenly, the end of the letter, and here comes that statement to Archippus. God gave you a ministry. God expects you to fulfill your ministry. Make sure you do it. Some people believe that he was maybe even filling in for Epaphras while he was gone. Finally, verse 18, 
The salutation by the hand of me, Paul. Remember my bonds. Grace be with you. Amen. Paul dictated his, had somebody write his letters generally and then would sign them at the end. You could hear the chain on his wrist as he lifted it up, clanking, signing his name to that letter. And he says, remember my bonds, maybe to say, pray for me, pray for the gospel's sake, and make sure that you do all you can to fulfill the ministry that you've been given. Take these words to heart and do them with all your might, and God will reward you someday. We're going to give an invitation. Perhaps you would like to pray. You guys can stand with me tonight. Perhaps you'd like to pray right where, where you're at. Those that are online, you can pray right there wherever you're listening or if you're listening some other means, some other time. If the Lord has spoken to you in any way, in anything, in this message, take the time just in these next few minutes and more than that, begin that prayer life we talked about if you don't have one. Spend the time with God and see what He'll do. Just see what He'll do. That's my challenge to you. Amen. We're going to open these altars. You can pray.